invite you to open your Bibles with me tonight to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, we're going to be looking tonight at verses 12 through 17. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. This is a glorious text that uh, opens up our adoption in Christ. And J.I. Packer says that uh, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification, he says. And so, so here we're, we're really coming to the, the apex, to the, the highest peak of the, the riches of our salvation in Jesus. So Romans chapter 8 Beginning in verse 12, this is God's infallible word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this rich gospel text. And as we would come to it tonight, we confess, God, our impotence to understand it left to ourselves. We confess Lord, that the things in your word are not only inspired by your spirit, but they are also uh, spiritually discerned. They require the Holy Spirit working in us in order for us to understand them. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now that you would come and work in our hearts and our minds, that you would open our eyes to behold the glory, the weight, the majesty that is here in the text before us. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. On July 13, 1960, Joy Davidman, the wife of C.S. Lewis, died after a lengthy battle with cancer. The loss was an agonizing experience for Lewis. In the midst of it, he wrote a series of reflections, and, and they were published the, the following year. The, the title of the book was A Grief Observed, and it is a refreshingly transparent and honest look at a man wrestling with God in his grief. 
Lewis, in the depths of his bereavement, describes what it's like to go to God, quote, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence, end quote. Lewis wrestled with feeling deserted by God. That in the moments when, when he most needed God, God was nowhere to be found and seemed altogether indifferent. He went on to say this, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Suffering in its various forms can leave us feeling as if God has slammed the door in our face. It can cause us to question God's loving kindness. It can even lead us to demonize God as Lewis feared. What kind of God? What kind of God would allow, even ordain, temptation, struggle with sin, physical loss, grief, pain, opposition, and persecution. In the passage before us this evening, Paul fixes our eyes on our adoption in Jesus Christ. God reveals himself here as a warm-hearted father who lavishes his children with eternal affection. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is the highest peak of the gospel. And yet, how do we reconcile it with Lewis's experience and our own? God often seems anything but a warm-hearted and fatherly God in the midst of our losses and crosses. Lavish divine affection does not appear to coincide with the deep pain that we undergo in this life. But in Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, we find these two realities. Our suffering and God's fatherly love. Our suffering and our adoption in Christ wed inseparably together. Paul is here teaching us that God assures us of our adoption by conforming us to the crucified Son of God. He assures us of our adoption by conforming us to the crucified Son of God. Our sonship is a suffering sonship because God is making us like His suffering Son. I want to open up our, our text tonight with, with the help of three heads, and, and all three of them will, will help us to, to see this point. Uh, we'll see first our indebtedness as sons, second, our intimacy as sons, and third, our inheritance as sons. 
in conforming us to the image of Christ, God places a, a certain moral obligation upon us. This is the first point of our text, our indebtedness as sons. Children, you are naturally under the authority of your father, and, and that places certain obligations upon you. You, being under his authority, are obliged to do that which he tells you. When dad tells you to do something, you have to do it. And our text here tonight says that there is a similar obligation that accompanies our sonship in Christ. Verse 12 tells us that we are debtors. And we're debtors not to the flesh, but we're debtors to the Spirit. And this moral obligation is fulfilled when, verse 13, by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. This is what we call mortification, killing the remaining sin, the remaining corruption within. We are warned here that our eternity hinges upon our mortification. If you put your sin to death, Paul says, you will live. But if you fail to do this, he says, you will die. The apostle goes on in verse 14 to explain this. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who mortify sin by the Spirit will live eternally. And here is why. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God to kill sin are the sons of God. Paul here connects our mortification with our adoption. If the Spirit is directing and empowering you to wage war on your sin, this is proof this is evidence that you are indeed a child of God. And this is because, of course, the, the Spirit whom you've received, the, the Spirit who is governing your life, the Spirit who enables you to kill sin is, verse 15, the Spirit of adoption as sons. To be in the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit is to be adopted. To the contrary, if you are not being led by the Spirit to kill sin, then you are not a son or daughter of God. And, and Paul is warning you very clearly, very explicitly in this text that if you remain in that condition, you will die. You will die eternally. God's children are holy. Not perfectly so, but God, by His Spirit, is making us like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. He is forming in us a certain family likeness. Imagine a young married couple adopts a 12-year-old boy. And this boy has spent his entire life in foster care. He, he's experienced a devastating abuse, and, and he's never known what it is to be loved in a lasting way. 
The adoption papers are signed and the boy legally becomes their son. The adoption is complete. He's brought into their home and he's treated as family. But it's not happily ever after once the adoption papers are signed. That boy carries years of baggage from his former life. It will take time for him to learn to trust his new mom and dad. It will take time for his behavior to change. There will be many heartaches and much pain involved in the process. While he becomes a part of the family immediately, it takes a long time for him to become like the family. Similarly, our adoption in Christ is an immediate reality. The moment that you and I are united to Christ by the Spirit, we become sons and daughters of God. We're brought into God's household. But it takes time for us to begin to bear the likeness, to begin to bear the image of our new family. We carry the sinful baggage of our former life. We doubt whether our new father can be trusted. And sometimes we even are tempted to leave our new home and go back to our former family in Adam. But here's what Paul is telling us here, and this is, this is wonderfully comforting if you're a Christian tonight. Paul is telling us that God has put his spirit in us to enable us to begin to bear the family likeness. This is true of every child of his. For all the children of God are led to kill sin by the Spirit of God. Now perhaps as you're, as you're sitting here tonight, you're, you're asking yourself, well, why would God do it this way? Is this not cruel? Why not eradicate sin completely so that mortification is not necessary? I mean, we know that God's able to do that because he will do it in our glorification. So why not create perfect family likeness in us at the point of conversion? I think there's many reasons. But the reason given in our text is is that the way of God's sons is the way of the cross. It's the way of death. As Christ's path was one of suffering unto glory, so is that of every son in him. Mortification is intensely painful and costly. Taking a dagger to your bosom sins is agonizing. The fight against sin can be downright exhausting. And in this remaining struggle, God is wanting to teach us how desperately we need the crucified Savior. We could never kill sin without the cross. John Owen says that there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. By His cross... Christ died to sin and obtained the Spirit for us. And now by the Spirit, 
We know the sin-killing power of the cross in us. In our mortification, we are being conformed to the crucified Son of God. By it, we are being fitted with a certain family likeness. And this assures us, friends, this assures us that we are indeed the sons and daughters of God. So let me ask you, is, is the Spirit so governing your life? The, the, the question that our text asks is not, is your life perfect? Not, is your life sinless? But, but is your soul in opposition to sin? Are you waging war on your sin? Do you know the sin-killing power of Christ's cross? We will fulfill our moral obligation to kill sin only as we live in fellowship with our Heavenly Father. To the degree that we're acquainted with God's love for us, we will respond to that love in loving adoration that hates sin and desires holiness. Family likeness, the family likeness that we see here in our text, it's, it's brought about through communion with God as our Father. And that brings us to our second point, our intimacy as sons. In verse 15, Paul tells us that, that by the Spirit, we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. This declaration is, is not half-hearted or absent-minded. So often when we come to prayer, we, we address God as, as our Father and, and we, we fail to sense the, the weight of those words, the, the significance of what we are saying when we call the living God, the true God, the creator God, our Father. But that is not so here. Here we find a cry. This declaration proceeds from the, the deep recesses of the soul. The heart here has experienced the love of God in, in, a, in an incomprehensible and overpowering way. It has been gripped with the grace of adoption. And this causes the child of God not to stoically recite the Lord's Prayer, but to cry out from the depths, Abba, Father. This is an intensely intimate cry. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. By the Spirit, we're literally crying, Father, Father. What's the significance of the repetition? Well, John Murray says that it indicates the warmth as well as the confidence with which the Holy Spirit emboldens the people of God to draw nigh as children to a father able and ready to help them. And the Spirit produces this warmth and this confidence in our souls by assuring us of our adopted status. It's what we see in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. 
It's the Spirit's witness in us of our adoption that enables us to then cry out, Abba, Father. He uses the Word of God to cause us to grow in our assurance of the fact that God, the living God, is our Father. And that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from His love. And in so doing, the Spirit produces a warmth, a confidence uh, between us and God. A, a deep, rich, filial intimacy. We may be tempted to think that such intimacy is best fostered in the context of peace and repose. I think when we hear the word intimacy, it, it oftentimes conjures up honeymoon-like scenes where everything is bright and calm. But the, the context of our text is, is no honeymoon. The, the context of our text is a far cry from a honeymoon. Before this utterance, before this cry was ever upon the lips of an adopted Son of God, it was first upon the lips of the incarnate Son of God. Paul is here quoting Jesus. In Mark 14, 36, we find our Savior with warmth and confidence crying out to God, Abba, Father. When did these sacred words proceed from our Savior's lips? It was not on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. It was not when everything was, was going well and, and easy. It was not in, in the prime of, of his uh, success. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that these words came forth from our Savior. It, it was as his soul was... Uh, distressed and troubled beyond what we can even comprehend. It was when his agony led him to sweat great drops of blood. It was as the cup of wrath was being pressed to his lips that he cried out to his father in intimate desperation, Abba, Father, the cross is the context in which this intimacy grows and thrives. It's when my son falls off his bike and scrapes up his knee that, that he suddenly is impelled to cry out for daddy. The natural instinct when inflicted with pain is to run into the arms of his dad, to bury his tear-stained face in my chest, to feel the warmth of my embrace, to, to hear the comfort of my words. And that's what we find here, friends. God's purpose in our affliction is to drive us, to drive us into his arms. He is seeking greater intimacy. He's seeking greater fellowship with us. 
What if the things, the, the, the very things that cause you to question God's love are actually evidences of His love? What if instead of seeing pain and grief and loss as a door slammed in your face by God, you begin to see it rather as a door wide open into the household of God? That's what Paul is calling us to here. Our suffering is an invitation to intimacy with our Heavenly Father. The Spirit, by leading us to kill our sin and by drawing us into communion with our Father, assures us of our adopted status. By His gracious ministry, we come to see that we are indeed the children of God. And as He does this, He assures us of the glory that, that awaits us as His children. And this brings us third to our inheritance as sons. Paul says in verse 17 that if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. There's a confidence here, a certain certainty here. Children naturally become the heirs of all that is their father's. And through our union with Christ, as we have seen, we, we have become adopted. We have become sons in the Son. And thus we have a rightful share in the inheritance of Christ. We are fellow heirs with Him. What did Christ inherit? What, what was His reward? Heavenly glory with His Father. In our humanity, he has now been resurrected and exalted to the highest place. He has been given the, the glory that he had with his father before the world began. And as his spirit bears witness with our spirit of our adoption, we have assurance that where he is, we will one day to be. Our inheritance is not a mansion in the sky. It's, it's not a heavenly bank account. We've got to get this clear, friends. Our inheritance is God himself. Perfect, uninterrupted fellowship with our heavenly Father. God himself will be our portion forever. The family likeness which God is working in us now in our mortification, will then be perfected. The intimacy which is now hindered by our sin will be perfected. We will be like the glorified Son basking in the glory of our Father forever. But there's a certain condition, we could say, placed upon this future hope. How did Christ obtain his inheritance? It was through suffering. It was through the cross. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that it was only because he humbled himself to the point of death that now God has highly 
exalted him. And so too with us. Look again at at verse 17. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to this. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, we will share with Christ in glory then. Only if we share with him in suffering now. This is not because our suffering merits glory. We don't earn our glorification by our pain and by our sorrow and by our mortification. But God calls us to follow in the steps of our Savior who entered into resurrection glory only after suffering. Humiliation is the precursor to exaltation. Paul goes on to speak of this in the following verses. And we don't don't have time to look at this in length. I'd encourage you to spend some time looking at these verses in the week ahead. But he, in the following verses, personifies the creation. And he personifies the whole creation as groaning. Longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. And then look at verse 23. He says this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How could Paul speak this way? He makes it sound as if we're not yet adopted, as if if adoption is is something off in the future that we're waiting for and, and longing for. Are we crying, Abba, Father, by the spirit of adoption, experiencing the inner witness that we are God's children now, as we saw in verses 15 and 16? Or are we groaning with an intense longing for a not yet realized adoption? Which one is it? Is Paul here contradicting himself? No. No, not at all. By the Spirit of Christ, we are the sons and daughters of God now, right now. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. He has put his name upon you. He has brought you into his home. He has lavished you with his love. He pities you. He protects you. He provides for you. He disciplines you. As a a loving father does his child. If you are in Christ, all of that is true of you now. Right now. But Paul is telling us here that there is coming a day when not only our inner being, not only our inner man, but our outer being, our outer man, will experience this adoption in the resurrection On that day, our sonship will be one of breathtaking glory. Now, however, it is one of groaning, one of suffering, one of crying out, 
one of killing sin. His cross is the precursor to glory. Now let me be clear here. This this does not mean that we should pray for suffering or seek after suffering or even enjoy suffering. Nowhere does God tell us in the Bible that we're supposed to like our suffering. But as Christians, and this, this is the point of of our text. As Christians, we need to understand who we are as we live in this tear-filled, pain-filled, hate-filled world. We are the children of God. We are loved by God. And our suffering is not a contradiction to that love. It perfectly accords with it. Friend, do you desire God to to bear his heart towards you? Do you desire to know this inner witness of the Spirit that bears witness with your spirit that, that you are indeed a son or daughter of God? Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that these realities are ordinarily experienced in this age through the cross. The cross conforms us to the likeness of God's family. The cross is the the context of our filial fellowship with God. The cross is the condition of our future hope of glory with God. The Spirit assures us of our adoption by conforming us to the crucified Son of God. This is not massively, massively comforting. He does not leave remaining sin within us for no purpose. Despite what we might feel in our pain, God God is not slamming the door in our face. He's not out to get us with evil intentions. He's not silent, friends. Every hurt, every struggle, every loss, it is a stage, a stage upon which God our Father is displaying His heart toward us. Every cross is being used to fit us for an eternity in His house. And so let us revel Let us marvel, let us glory in the privileges that belong to us in this suffering sonship as we set our eyes on the superlative sonship to come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the rich comfort that is found in the riches of your grace, your adoptive grace. We thank you, God, that you are not just a judge whose wrath has been appeased. You're not just a judge whose righteous standard has been met, but that you and the gospel are our warm-hearted, loving Father who desires intimate, deep fellowship with us forever. We confess, Lord, that the truths of this text are beyond us. 
Lord, that we have but begun to scratch the surface of the, the glory that is here. But, oh God, we pray that you would seal these truths upon our hearts. Lord, that for each one here who is in Christ, that you would so work these truths in us, that we would be moved, that we would be stirred up, that we would be changed by uh, these realities of our present sonship in Christ and of the sonship that is to come in our future glory. Lord, please work these things in us, we pray, and continue with us as we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close tonight by singing song, uh, Trinity Hymnal 708, O oh, love that will not let me go.